Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Glad to have you with us. I hope you're holding up okay from the heavy rain. Suzanne just describing what's going on with the flood warning that's been issued by the National Weather Service, the the flooding in low-lying areas of the freeways. Seems like we always have that with the heavy downpours at the terminus of the 710 freeway. We'll keep you updated, of course, Suzanne, with her hourly updates. And as any alerts come in, I'll be bringing them to you over the course of these two hours of air talk. So I just want to assure you, with our weather coverage, you don't have to go anywhere else. We're on top of it. And with that in mind, we begin with LAS Jacob Margolis to talk about what's happening with this weather pattern. Suzanne just describing the very specifics of what's going on now. But let's uh, go back a little bit bigger picture. Jacob, thank you for joining us. What what are we seeing right now and what's fueling uh, this series of storms? Yeah, so we have, I mean, the, the big thing that we're focused on or that I'm watching, Larry, has been this, uh, you know, a ton of warm water off the coast that essentially uh, it's about 100 miles off the coast, down to Baja, up to Point Conception in the Santa Barbara area. And it's a sign of El Nino. This is what happens with a strong El Nino quite often. And basically, that warm water sends heat and moisture up into the atmosphere. And so when we get these atmospheric rivers that kind of, you know, literal rivers in the sky that sh- shoot right towards us, um, you know, they get powered up by that warm water. And so we're now dealing with the consequences of that. This isn't even going to be the heaviest precipitation and snow, whatever we're going to see in the next week. This next storm coming up on Sunday, um, that's the one that I'm, you know, uh, we always see some street flooding, but that one I think could actually be some pretty damage. Mm, all right. Sorry to hear to hear that. I didn't realize that the El Nino in the eastern Pacific is only a hundred miles offshore. I didn't realize it's so close to us. Yeah, I mean the 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 if you look at maps, you'll see the stretch that warm water can stretch quite a long way, um, all the way up and down the west coast of uh, the of, I guess North America, Central America, parts of South America as well, and really it stretches all the warm water stretches all the way across the Pacific, and so there's quite a bit of area for it to influence weather, and there's a lot of ways that we actually do not know how it influences weather or what influences it around the world. Um, an interesting thing that came up, a report that came up a few months ago that I that I wrote about was that uh, they believe a few years ago the El Nino was actually kicked off by. Uh, by major fires in uh, Australia that basically um, that uh, basically altered atmospheric conditions enough where uh, that was able to happen. So that was, a, yeah, very fascinating. We're talking with science reporter for L.A. is Jacob Margolis. So, Jacob, um, these storms is kind of they're like get turbocharged as they come across the warmer water. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what happens. And so um, that's one of the reasons why, and this time of year is 
pretty much exactly when we're starting to see the impacts of El Nino. You know, even we've been hearing about it since I think, gosh, last uh, June, probably maybe even May. Um, but for us here in Southern California, which it's oftentimes associated with above average rain, um, you know, uh, it, it, this is usually when the impacts start to come about between like January, December, January, but really about right now. And uh, we're still, I, I have to check the totals, but I think we're still actually below average. So mm-hmm. this is, this is pretty normal across the board for us. Atmospheric rivers do a lot for our moisture here in California, and even just a couple of them can catch us up. We we need the rain. It's just if it could uh, spread itself out a little bit so it doesn't yeah, I mean, come in torrents. Yeah, that's what we always wish. That's why there's so much discussion about storing this moisture while it's here. You'll hear every press conference with the governor about water that we need to build more uh, and basically sequester more water into, into the groundwater. And that's because we do just get these bursts of rain. And then, you know, I don't know, we just had 75 degree weather, right? And and then extremely dry for a period of time. So uh, that is something that is being progressed in a number of different ways. Jacob, I know you you cover Southern California, so you might not have come across this, but I was just curious because in mm-hmm. in previous El Nino phenomenons, we've seen the storm track dip to the south, and so mm-hmm. the the northern states, particularly Pacific Northwest, getting less precipitation, and we getting much more rain here. And I was just curious do you do you know season to date what they've seen up to the north? Um, well, I know that right now they're getting absolutely hammered by okay. uh, extreme rain up in British Columbia and Washington. And this is, and I believe the storm system up there kind of came from the same area as ours down here. It basically split, uh, you know, one went far north, one went further south. Um, but uh, yeah, so like all those suggestions when it comes to El Nino and La Nina and what it might portend for us every single year are just that it's like based on averages. And Mm -hmm. it seems that, you know, so that's why we always that's why I always caveat it when I come on the radio. Uh, Leslie in Palos Verdes just emailed us here in Rancho Palos Verdes. We're definitely in flood mode. I'm looking at this photo and it just shows a river going down the street. It Uh looks like a car has actually been displaced. It looks like it might have been parked along the curb, but displaced from the curb because of the volume of water. But it's difficult to to fully see what's going on, except that the street is absolutely full. So, Leslie, thank you for sharing that. Leslie, I hope you stay safe. And like that, you know, that's something that we also tend to see. I mean, some pretty gnarly videos have come out of like Silverado Canyon, right? Every single year, Uh, you see that some places are really prone to this. And especially when it comes to the storm drains, you know, they back up and it becomes a problem. Jacob, thank you so much. Appreciate it. So just real quickly, you said an even bigger storm system comes in Sunday. And and how long is that expected to last? Uh, At least until Tuesday. I mean, it's a Sunday night through Monday night. That's the biggest concern. But the models... The models have been a little bit iffy on exactly what it's going to bring. And so I'll be checking in today and probably tomorrow to see um, what they're saying. But I've seen anywhere from like barely any rain. But it seems that the heavy, heavy rain is kind of solidified in those models, which I would love to have a model discussion, Larry, someday yes, on the uh, radio. I haven't figured out a way to make it really interesting, but it's really important. And uh, it's fascinating. Are you kidding? Air Talk <laughs> listeners would eat that up. <laughs> We're weather right. geeks. Absolutely. It's Thank you. Thanks so much, Jacob. I appreciate Thanks, it. Larry. LA is science reporter Jacob. Jacob Margolis with what's going on with the weather. And um, it appears we're also going to have rain continuing later into next week, at least according to the long-term forecast, which Jacob is going to be investigating. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. 
was a big day in the city of Los Angeles, February 1st, and the end of COVID-era renter protections on increases in rent, as well as um, the period where uh, renters have to pay back rent uh, that went unpaid during the pandemic period. With us is LAist housing reporter David Wagner to talk about what's going on. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Larry. So let's start with, with first of all, what's happening today overall when it comes to renters and landlords in L.A.? Yeah, this is a really big day for uh, renters and landlords. Uh, you know, the city has kept these COVID-19 protections going for a really long time now, far longer than other cities. But L.A. housing officials say today it's the end of the line. You know, so what that means is that there, there are these two key protections that are coming to an end. Uh, one is, the, like you said, the protection against rent increases in LA's rent-controlled housing. This is about three-quarters of all apartments in the city that are rent-controlled. So rent hikes, you know, have been banned for a lot of tenants in LA for close to four years now. But starting today, landlords can raise their rents by anywhere from 4 to 6% if the landlords pay for gas and electricity. Um, so, you know, that's one big change for many renters in the city. The other big deadline today is the end of eviction protections for tenants who fell behind on their rent during the pandemic. You know, if they got laid off, if they got sick, if they lost income due to COVID, the city has allowed them to put off paying rent. But that rent was never canceled. No one ever got free it was all just kind of, you know, put in this bucket and delayed and protected. Uh, today is the day that rent is all coming due. So if tenants don't pay back everything they owe from October 2021 through January 2023, they could soon face eviction. All right. And and then the question is whether the people who've, who've gone without paying rent for what could be a couple year period of time, whether they'll have the financial resources to make the rent whole, uh, you know, to their to their landlord. Um, you also went out, I know, with, with people uh, who work with a couple of the L.A. council members' offices to provide information to residents. You know, share with us what, what that process was like. Yeah, you know, the city has known that this day is coming for a long time, and they've been trying to prepare, get out, you know, information about tenants' rights and resources. And, and this is kind of an interesting approach that they're taking, an interesting new uh, way that they're uh, contacting tenants. So about a year ago, the city council passed all these new eviction protections when certain COVID rules were going away back then. There was a lot of discussion around these protections. You know, landlords lobbied against, you know, one of the big ones was a rule that bars evictions until tenants fall behind by more than about a month's worth of rent. But as part of that package of new protections, there was this one rule that kind of didn't get discussed very much, kind of slipped under the radar. It's this rule that landlords now have to inform the city's housing department every time they initiate the process of an eviction. So the city, you know, for the first time now has all this data about who exactly landlords are trying to evict. They they never used to know this in the past. And, and many cities, you know, across Southern California don't know where eviction notices are going out. But the city now has this information and outreach workers from city council districts, from nonprofits, they're using these eviction filing uh, data um, to literally go out and show up at the doors of tenants who have received eviction notices. So they're talking to those people about their rights, about legal aid resources. I tagged along for some of these door knocking trips and I saw how these conversations play out. 
you know, there there are stressed out renters out there, you know, they, who can't afford to pay back everything they owe from the pandemic. Some of them have applied for the city's rent relief program, but haven't gotten funding yet. They're still waiting on that. Um, you know, I saw other people kind of describe the other issues that they're facing in their apartments, like one woman in Encino who um, answered the door, started talking all about the cockroach problem in her apartment that her landlord wasn't addressing. And, you know, literally right as she started talking about that, a cockroach started crawling right uh, on the wall next to me. So, you know, outreach workers that I tagged along with, they say they see these kinds of stories every day. And of course, been very stressful for landlords as well, as they've seen their hands tied in many cases and gone without the revenue from their rental properties. I'd love to hear from AirTalk listeners uh, whether you're a renter who finds yourself in a precarious circumstance because of, of now that rent being due with the end of the COVID protections, what you're doing uh, how you're handling what may be this uh, major day of stress in your life. We're at 866-893-5722. If you're a property owner, I'd be interested in hearing from you uh, how you've been dealing with uh, any tenants that have not been paying rent, uh, with evictions that you're trying to implement, what you found about that process, what's working or not, from your perspective. We're at 866 893 you can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. And again, I just want to emphasize, as David said, this is for the city of Los Angeles that this date is so critical when it comes to rental properties. 866-893-5722. If you're a renter finding yourself in a difficult circumstance, or or if it's the other way, you have you found yourself able to pay back the back rent and to stay where you are. Share with us how, how you made that work out. And if you are uh, a landlord, I'm interested in hearing your experience through this and what you're anticipating now with the expiration of the COVID-era rules. 866 866- 893-5722 or email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll continue our conversation with LAist housing reporter David Wagner about the big changes in Los Angeles rental properties when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org.
So good to have you with us on Air Talk. Coming up later this hour, we talk about polyamory. It's what used to be called open marriage. The idea that you're not just in a monogamous relationship, but that you're in multiple relationships. I I think of polyamory as more than just what used to be called sleeping around, that um, it's a little bit deeper than that, more intimate than that. So we'll hear from listeners who are in polyamorous relationships or at some point in their lives have been polyamorous. You can call us. uh, That's coming up in just a few minutes at 866-893-5722. Right now, though, I invite you to join us on that same number to talk about what's happening with you. If you're a Los Angeles resident or Los Angeles property owner and you rent out units in your property, to share with us what uh, today means for you with the expiration of the COVID era protections that existed for renters, uh, restrictions on landlords on uh, their evictions of tenants, and they're having to delay receiving rent uh, for people who didn't have the money to be able to pay their rent during the era of COVID. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. David, I was curious why the the protections went so long, because we've had a robust job market for for so long now. Businesses haven't been closed because of COVID. So it would seem jobs were available for people to get and be able to pay their rent. Why did the council extend this for the duration it did? I mean, that's certainly the the point that landlords have been making for years now, lobbying against this uh, rent freeze. You know, They've said the the COVID emergency is in the rearview mirror. People are back to work. Um, you know they can afford rent. Um, you know landlords say that this rent increase that's coming today is just not that big a deal for tenants. They say you know a lot of renters uh, in the city have now gone almost four years without any increase, so they can afford you know a four to six percent increase right now. I think you have to keep in mind though from the perspective of. Uh, city council members, from tenant advocates, that a lot of renters in L.A. are already paying rents that are unaffordable. You know, we know that more than half of uh, tenants, uh, when you look at U.S. Census Bureau data, more than half of L.A. tenants are already paying rents, um, you know, that exceed affordability standards uh, under the federal government rules around rent payment, you know. And then if you zoom in, there was a UCLA study this week that looked at particular groups, particularly um, black renters. Some, you know, more than a third of tenants in this group in L.A. are spending upwards of half their paycheck just on rent. So you have people who are already really cutting back on other uh, necessities, food, health care, transportation costs to, to pay for their rent. So for renters like that, you know, a four to six percent increase is going to be a big deal. But that goes beyond COVID. That's that's a larger issue. And then the question is, well, what do you do about that misfit uh, in the high housing prices? Do you know, do does government subsidize at a greater level housing for people? There are a lot of different. But it's interesting because this was very much in the framework of a, of a COVID program as opposed to that, that longer standing issue. The other thing is, as you said, the 4 to 6% increase is for already rent-controlled properties. So these are ones presumably that people have been in longer term and that the rent has been kept down for some time. 
Yes. So these are rent-controlled properties. Uh, you know, the city of L.A. has had rent control since the 70s uh, in place. Um, so, you know, this is this has been a unique period of time for, for that program, uh, you know, almost four years of 0% increases. In the past, it's been, you know, anywhere from 3 to 8% is what the city's law allows. It, it depends on inflation, how high that goes. And in years leading up to the pandemic, when inflation was much lower, it rarely got higher than 3%. So that's what people were uh, contending with in the past. Uh, this this rent hike uh, this time around is a little bit higher, 4 to 6% if uh, landlords cover utilities. Uh, notably, it was scheduled to be a little bit higher even. It was scheduled to be 7 to 9% based on inflation figures. But the city council took some action and, and lowered that uh, ahead of this February first deadline. Uh, another uh, issue, David, is just, you know, if there's going to be a spike in evictions, what is that going to mean to homelessness? That is the big question right now. You know, eviction levels are already up. They've been rising since about uh, the middle of 2022 here in L.A. So evictions are on an upward curve already. Uh, it's going to take some time to really understand what today's deadline means for evictions. We're not really going to see that show up in eviction filing data for some time. Um, but in the background, evictions are already on the rise. Uh, there have been studies, federal uh, government studies, that show when median rents rise in cities by about $100 a month, homelessness also tends to go up by about 9% is what researchers estimate. So this is a big concern. This is a concern that uh, Mayor Karen Bass has talked about, that nonprofits are focusing on. Um, you know, these COVID rules going away have uh, are raising a lot of concerns about yeah. homelessness. Because as 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 um, challenged as we've been by homelessness, that's with these protections, at least in the city of L.A., that's with these protections that have stayed in place all these years. That's right. I mean, homelessness went up in the city 10 percent at last count. Uh, this this count took place about a year ago now. The uh, the most recent homelessness count just happened um, uh, recently. So we'll see uh, what effect uh, these protections being peeled away has on uh, homelessness moving forward. Uh, we have Carmen in Arcadia who asks, what's the difference between the L.A. city and the unincorporated L.A. county rent protections? So, yeah, those are different programs. Um, the, un the, the L.A. county rules apply to renters um, in housing built a while ago in the unincorporated parts of the county. I believe about a million people in L.A. County live in unincorporated areas. It's like areas. Marina Del Rey, Altadena. East L.A. Yeah, right. yeah there, are, there are a bunch of these places. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's about... Rent control is extremely complicated. I'll say that. I get questions about it all the time, and it is even hard for me to track. So it really depends on where you live. Um, do you live in unincorporated L.A. County? Do you live in the city of L.A.? Do you live in another city with rent control? And how old your building is? This is a big, uh, this is a big variable in whether you're covered by rent control or not, and what type of uh, housing you live in. So if you live in an apartment building, you may be covered by rent control. But if you live in a single-family home, if that's what you're renting, you probably won't be. David, thank you so much. Really appreciate you bringing us up to date on what's happened with this very big day today for renters and for landlords in the city of Los Angeles. We appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. David Wagner, LAist housing reporter, and you can read his in-depth coverage always at LAist.com. 
Coming up, we're going to be talking about polyamory, and I want to hear from you. If you're someone who's been polyamorous sometime in your relational past, or if you're currently someone who has polyamorous relationships, you're non-monogamous, I'd like to hear from you at 866-893-5722-866-893-5722, or you can email us what your experience has been at at atcomments at las.com. It's AirTalk. Dedeker Winston is a non-monogamous relationship coach who works with individuals, couples, and triads. She's the co-host of the Multi-Amory podcast and author of The Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory and Multi-Amory Essential Tools for Modern Relationships. Dedeker, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, over the course of the many years of hosting Air Talk, we've taken this topic on several different times. It, it used to be referred to uh, as open marriage, and perhaps there are some subtle distinctions even between open marriage and what we now call polyamory. But, but first, let's define the term. How, how do you describe polyamory? Yeah. So, I mean, I love that you highlighted the fact that uh, these labels and these terms shift so quickly. And I think especially once the internet and social media hit the scene, they shift even faster. But probably the safest term that we can use is um, the term consensual non-monogamy, which is right now it's the preferred term used in research. So all the researchers who are looking at these type of relationships tend to refer to it as consensual non-monogamy or CNM. And we can define it as an umbrella term for relationships in which all partners give explicit consent to engage in romantic, intimate, or sexual relationships with multiple people. Uh, They're consensual relationships. They're not to be confused with infidelity, and they can take a wide variety of forms, everything from polyamory to swinging to so many other different labels and terms in between. Yeah, that's so interesting because uh, that's a little different than what my understanding had been because I had thought of polyamory as more sort of um, as opposed to people just um, having a variety of sexual partners or even like uh, in the swinging lifestyle where it's really recreational sex, that polyamory sort of implied a bit more intimacy um, but but without monogamy. But it sounds like not necessarily so, that, that it's a, it runs the gamut. It does run the gamut. I will say that probably most people who are using the label of polyamory, they are trying to communicate that there are more emotionally romantically entangled relationships right so if we set up something like swinging or sometimes referred to as the lifestyle as a contrast usually that's a type of consensual non-monogamy where there's usually a couple who is the primary unit the central unit Um, maybe they are married maybe they have children together maybe they cohabit uh, but they're choosing to go you know play with other people sexually maybe at parties maybe at resorts maybe on their own Uh, And if we set up polyamory as a contrast to that, generally there's more of an emphasis on, oh, these other relationships are not just, uh, you know, tertiary, temporary relationships, Mm -hmm. like people are trying to build actual relationships. And now sometimes that can mean 
that can look many, many different ways, right? You know, people practice everything from what's known as parallel polyamory, which might be, I have multiple partners, but like, I'm not really that interested in my partners meeting each other. You know, maybe I kind of keep some distance and some separation there all the way up to what the community tends to refer to as kitchen table polyamory. The idea that, oh yeah, like I have my partner and my partner has their partner and then I have another partner and then we can all sit down at the kitchen table and have coffee together because we're friendly enough with each other. Um, some people choose to cohabit and buy property altogether. Some people choose to raise children together, but it is important to clarify. I think the biggest misconception though about polyamory is the assumption that it's all a bunch of people in like one group relationship together, yeah, yeah. like living on a utopic commune. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I grew yeah. up, we had a commune down the, down the, I grew up in the Hollywood Hills. We had a commune mm-hmm. down the street and it was our neighborhood commune. And, and, and I was talking with Your one of the people, commune. yeah, I was talking with one of the people that lived there and, and, and she said, yeah, it's been a commune for like 40 years. It's, wow. it was just an ongoing commune house on our street. But, um, so yeah, that would be one example of polyamory, it sounds like but but not that not definitive of what the term yeah yeah potentially and i mean the media gets really excited by um triads in particular or thruples like there's a lot of media coverage of triads and thruples and that gives i think an incorrect assumption about what most polyamorous people practice the dominant relationship structure that we see among polyamorous people is um, interconnected dyads so as in like people are still in dyadic relationships but they may have multiple partners, right? And then their partner may have other partners and it's almost kind of creating like this molecule type type chain as it were. And so, um, you know, if I have two partners, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are also seeing each other. It doesn't mean that everyone's crawling into bed at night and, and sleeping together necessarily. We're talking with Dedeker Winston, who's a non-monogamous relationship coach. Uh, she's the co-host of the Multi-Amory podcast. And I want to hear from you if you're someone who is polyamorous uh, currently or you have been in your relational past uh, polyamorous. I'd like to hear what your experiences are, what you like about it, uh, any sorts of obstacles along the way, any sorts of difficulties you've had with one or more of the concurrent relationships relationships that you've been involved in. We're at 866-893-5722. What have you learned from the experience? 866-893-5722. You can also email your experiences to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Chase in Palm Springs emailed, here in Palm Springs, there's a very robust gay community. I know many individuals with open relationships including my own. While shocking to some, there are still relationships that are merely physically open. In my own relationship, we've agreed on intimate time with others, either solo or together, but have what we call emotional monogamy. From my own experience, it's pretty common. Gay dating apps frequently list both poly and open as separate options along with single and monogamous. It sounds pedantic, but those different labels are very important to many people. Thank you for your great work. Oh, I don't need to read the praise to me, but thank you. I appreciate that, <laughs> Chase. Thanks. Very kind, what you say. Um, uh, Dedeker, your response to, um, to uh, what Chase in Palm Springs is detailing. Yeah, well, I appreciate that Chase said that, you know, sometimes these labels are very important to people. And it's true. I, you know, I have been myself personally practicing some form of consensual non-monogamy for close to 15 years now. I've been working with clients for close to 10 years now. And 
every single time I think that I've seen every possible way that people can do this, every possible set of agreements, every possible set of boundaries, like once I think I've seen it all, then somebody comes along showing me something entirely new. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I do think something that really attracts people to non-monogamy is this perception that there's more customization that can go into your relationship, right? You know, I think we all get this particular package of messages about romantic and sexual relationships. We all kind of get this package that tells us that, you know, monogamy is this default. And then we kind of stop thinking about it, right? When even within the frame of monogamy, there can be variation, right? Um, you know, for some people, monogamy means my partner doesn't even look at pornography, right? And so I think that what's been really exciting for a lot of people coming to this community is this ability to negotiate with a partner what actually feels good for the two of you as individuals, and that that can shift and change over time as well. You know, I've definitely known some people who maybe have started out more as like swingers in the lifestyle. Again, we kind of do this emotional monogamy thing and we just play with other people and then they've developed deep friendships or started catching feelings and then they've kind of blossomed into playing around more with polyamory, you know, that there's sort of this, you know, encouragement to be talking with your partner and with your partners on a regular basis about like what actually is working for you in the relationship and updating your relationship agreements and functioning accordingly. We're talking with Dedeker Winston, non-monogamous relationship coach. Again, I welcome hearing from you. And and our call's been a little slow today. I assume the heavy rain we're experiencing. Many of you are, are clenching the wheel with both hands, being very safe on the road. And I wouldn't want to do anything to distract you or to take your attention off the important task of driving with the distraction of heavy rain. But uh, if it is safe to pull off and make a call, you have something to say on the subject of polyamory, particularly your personal experiences with it, what you learned from it, what what you like about uh, polyamory if you are now in multiple relationships or have uh, a relationship that is open to experiences with people outside a primary relationship. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. If you can safely call us, we really look forward to hearing from you. It's a chance to hear from listeners and their experiences about having relationships in which it's consensual and fully open. 866-893-5722. Back in 90 seconds. So I was curious that we're not getting any phone calls. I thought, this can't be our renter segment. We didn't get any. We're not getting any on polyamory, air talk listeners. That didn't make sense. So during the break, I called our call-in line, and it's down. So my apologies. If you've been trying to get through, I misled you out of ignorance. I'm sorry. Um, we are going to work to get our lines up. Thankfully, we have a terrific guest uh, who's doing such a great and nuanced job of describing polyamory. So she and I are going to keep talking. And in the meantime, we will try and get our phone lines fixed. I have to assume it's related to the heavy rain that we're experiencing throughout Southern California, but I don't know for a fact. So we're going to work on trying to get our call-in lines reestablished. So here's, here's the thing I'd ask of you. Uh, our email is up, so you can email us 
I know that doesn't help if you're driving unless you can pull over safely and, and shoot us an email. But please send an email to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. So that's the way we can hear from you right now. atcomments at las.com while we try and get our phone system functioning. We're talking with Dedeker Winston, non-monogamous relationship coach, co-host of the Multi-Amory podcast and author of a couple books on the subject, The Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory and Multamory Essential Tools for Modern Relationships. Dedeker, I, I certainly don't want to, to pry into your personal relationships, but I do want to ask you if you're comfortable talking about it. The things that maybe you've learned about yourself by being non-monogamous. Wow, what a deep question. Yeah, it, it's interesting that when I think about this entire journey that I've been on of, you know, practicing, exploring, engaging in non-traditional relationships for for almost 15 years now. And it's interesting that when I think back to when I first, in my early 20s, was in my very, very first open relationship, at the time, it was very much about autonomy and independence and establishing my identity. I think when I was in my early 20s, there was very much still this rebellious streak that wanted to push against the system and wanted to carve out space for myself and wanted to figure out who I was, you know, within this context. And so, you know, in my early 20s, that was the motivating force behind trying something entirely different. And then as I've gained more experience and have gotten to try out many, many different ways of relating, it's it, what's really bubbled up to the surface is I think there's just something about for me, the reason why I think that these days I've, I've really firmly settled into polyamory as opposed to like swinging or an open marriage or stuff like that, that there's something about the relationality that really excites me, that really lights me up. You know, there have been times where, you know, I'll go to a birthday party and I have both of my partners there and they have their partners there. And maybe I even have an ex-partner there and their partner is there as well. And it all feels relatively calm, relatively chill. It feels like a family to a certain extent. And I think there's been something about that, about building out intimate networks and having more of these connections has been life-changing for me. Um, and in particular, the relationship I want to highlight is uh, what's known as the metamor relationship. So this is another- Yeah, what you know, is that? New, yeah, a metamor is, is a term that the non-monogamous community has come up with. So um, my metamor is my partner's other partner, right? So if I have a partner and um, I'm his girlfriend and then he has another girlfriend, that girlfriend is my metamor. Okay. And the best proxy that I've come up with for describing the metamor relationship to people is that it's almost like an in-law relationship where, where it's that like you sense. didn't get to choose this person who's connected to the person that you love. And just like an in-law relationship, it can run the gamut from uh, absolutely amazing. You love them. You love spending time with them. You get along great to you freaking hate their guts and they get under your skin um, to something in the middle of just like kind of take it or leave it. Right. You'll be polite to them at the birthday party, but you don't necessarily need to be their best friend. And um, I, I find that's a really interesting and really special relationship. You know, I've definitely had some pretty bad and toxic metamor relationships, but then, you know, I've had metamor relationships where we've become best friends and business partners, and it's just been absolutely amazing. And so 
that's just one of the many different types of connections that for me kind of just goes into the mix of, um, for me, it falls under this umbrella of chosen family. And for me, polyamory is just one of the ways that I, I kind of build mm-hmm. out my chosen family. We're talking with Dedeker Winston, non-monogamous relationship coach. And you can answer this either from your personal experience or people that you've worked with. Either way is fine. But I, I wonder how frequently in, in polyamory that the different partners are um, – are significantly different from each other. In other words, they offer different aspects. So there's like a partner who maybe, you know, you go to a particular, you go to theater together, or you go to concerts together, and you have a connection to music, let's say, and and someone else who it's much, you know, maybe you work in a similar field, and so they they have a good understanding of the kind of work. It, is that something that's very common, or is that is that not necessarily one of the areas of fuel for polyamory? So uh, I think there's a really common piece of what I call polyamory PR that gets floated around, uh, which is this idea that, yes, different partners can fulfill different needs. And I think the example that you used is pretty apt. You know, the idea that I love going to the theater, but I have a partner who would really prefer to go to football games. And so how nice is it for me that I can date someone who loves going to the theater, right? And I can kind of get these different needs met elsewhere. So that is true that different relationships and different partnerships are going to bring out different sides of you, different hobbies. It's going to get you interested in different things, which is great. It's probably going to help you expand as a person. And also at the same time, I really coach people to be cognizant of the fact is that they may have needs that they need in all of their relationships, you know, that it's not necessarily just that you can piecemeal outsource all of your needs in these tiny little chunks (laughs) to a bunch of different people, you know? So for instance, someone may need things like honesty, kindness, frequent communication, frequent date nights in all of their relationships, not just in one of their relationships, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking with Dedeker Winston, non-monogamous relationship coach. And my thanks to listeners who are now emailing us prolifically, and I appreciate it with our phone lines being down. Uh, Monique in Glendale emailed, I I thought I'd toss into the discussion about 5% of the people who like me on dating apps are couples practicing ethical non-monogamy. It's frustrating because I note I'm not interested in, quote, coupled people. My female friends all have this same problem. Erica emailed, my partner of nine years and I opened our previously monogamous relationship when I came out as bi slash queer. It's been really difficult to transition from a monogamous relationship to ethical non-monogamy slash polyamory, but it's like opening a door you can't close. I would never go back. We practice non-hierarchical polyamory as much as possible within a capitalist uh, society for two people who share a home, finances, and pets. I currently don't have another partner outside of my nesting partner, but the freedom to explore my queerness on my own is a blessing. That's Erica. Dedeker, your, your response to the listener comments. Yes. Okay. So the first one about the the woman who was talking about um, being by couples on on dating apps. Yes. Uh, Yeah, totally a thing for sure. So I'm not going to say, I'm not going to make a blanket statement and say that this applies to every single couple who's on a dating app together, but um, the non-monogamous community has generated this this term that is a little bit of a pejorative uh, known as unicorn hunting, quote unquote, unicorn hunting, which, which is usually presents itself as a 
straight couple um, who go on a dating app together with the explicit purpose of trying to find like a hot bisexual woman who's going to be attracted to both of them, maybe want to be in a triad with both of them, um, maybe be exclusively in a triad with both of them as in she wouldn't want to date anybody else. Um, now, this is an arrangement, um, whether a couple is seeking like a triad or a group relationship, or if they're just seeking a threesome, like there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. And if anything, I think that if that's something that people are interested in, they should definitely talk about it and definitely start you know, seeking resources and support around that. Uh, it's gotten a bad name, um, I think because of this, because people are tired of like you know, couples disregarding their profile mm -hmm. when they say that they're not interested, couples being a little bit predatory. Um, and I think the reason that this happens is, is that like for many couples, this is a little bit of a getting the feet wet stage on non-monogamy, right? That if they've been monogamous for a while, the idea of like, let's dip our toes in the water just by having group sex first, right? Or just by like dating someone together that for a lot of people, it feels like a safer transition as opposed to jumping straight into let's go date people separately. Right. Um, and that transition works for some people and it doesn't work yeah, for other people. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that's definitely a phenomenon. Uh, Jen in Worcester, Massachusetts emailed, uh, I'm now in Massachusetts previously was an almost lifelong LA resident. I'm a therapist specializing in working with people who are polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous. I'm a big fan of Dedeker's work. She's also just a lovely person. She says, and that nice. Uh, I work with so many <laughs> people who present very monogamously to the outside world and privately have been happily polyamorous for years. There are many of us therapists that specialize in this population, a very underserved population. Polyamory is not as rare as people may think. Clay in Los Angeles emailed, I have a triad with a 35 and 40 year age gap. I find the fact my partners haven't been in traumatic relationships in the past makes potentially sensitive topics or situations older partners might have reactions to largely absent in our house. Uh, please ask your guests to talk about jealousy and polyamory. Um, uh, th all right. Thanks. Uh, Dedeker, yeah. go right ahead. Yeah. yeah, jealousy. I mean, that's the most common question that I get asked in interviews, right? It's like, what do you do about the jealousy? What do you do about the jealousy? What do you do about the jealousy? And it's a complicated answer. Um, you know, I could probably give like a two hour TED talk just about, you know, how jealousy is handled or really seen within the context of non-monogamy. I would say that maybe the biggest difference is that, you know, in our culture, um, we get some interesting messages about jealousy. Uh, when it's not in a romantic context. So for instance, if you're feeling jealousy because like your sibling is getting more attention from your parents, if you're experiencing jealousy because your friend just got into a really wonderful romantic relationship and you've been single for a long time, if you're experiencing jealousy because um, you know the promotion that you thought you were gonna get went to somebody else at work, we have a particular story about that type of jealousy. You know, Generally we encourage people to be kind to themselves to you know examine like what this means do they need to communicate something does that does it mean that they need to take some kind of action in their life to feel better about themselves do they need to shore up their self-esteem we have that message about jealousy but then when it comes to jealousy within a romantic or sexual context we get the message that you should never feel that ever if you're feeling any romantic or sexual jealousy it means that something is wrong your partner is messing up in some way and like you need to pull the plug right and so when people start engaging in 
you know, healthy, intentional, consensual non-monogamy, the relationship to jealousy has to change. First of all, there is already a misconception that the people who are successfully practicing this just don't feel jealousy, which is not true. You know, jealousy is a human emotion mm -hmm. that is impossible to scrub from our psyche and from our systems. But the relationship to it changes, you know, especially when I am working with people through jealousy, I'm looking at a couple of different things. First of all, I'm always looking at what are the internal pieces that are coming up with the jealousy, right? Like often jealousy can be masking grief, rage, shame, envy, all kinds of things, right? Um, Self-esteem issues, um, insecurities, right? And so I'm always looking at what's going on internally with people. Is this pointing to stuff that needs to be healed internally? But I'm always looking at, um, and trauma, you know, past trauma can go, go into that as well. But I'm also always looking at what are the external factors as well? What's the external environment? Like the jealousy may be showing up because it's telling you, hey, there's something you've been wanting from your partner for a really long time and you haven't asked for it. And now they're giving it to somebody else. And now the alarm bells are going off. Right. And so it's an indication that like, maybe you need to ask for what you need, or maybe like there's been some kind of hurt in your relationship that you're really feeling right now. And it really needs to be repaired. So I find that just the relationship to jealousy changes mm -hmm. a little bit where it's not like, Ooh, this is toxic waste. We have to do everything possible to avoid it but seeing it a little bit more as a tool and a little bit more as a teacher and maybe a signpost pointing towards what are the things that need to be healed and what are the things that need to be repaired. Dedeker, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to get a, one or two more listener questions in. Olivia emailed, do you have a recommendations for a couple trying to tra transition from monogamy to non-monogamy? Yes, that's also a huge question. And it's, you know, like 90% of the work that I do with yeah. clients. But like hours long but it, sessions, undoubtedly. Exactly, yes, yeah. exactly. But um, some very broad, basic questions that I would encourage people to start with. I like to encourage people to start with the why. Like, why are you drawn towards this? And if you're doing this together with a partner, it may be different for you versus your partner. You know, what are the fantasies here? What's the nightmare scenario here? What are you hoping for? What are you longing for? What are you afraid of? I think it's really important to, to really dig down under the surface of what's actually motivating you here, right? Um, and then I encourage people to start to do their research and start to expose themselves to as many different types of role models as they can. Um, you know, social media, love it or hate it, at the very least, it means that it's relatively easy to follow whatever hashtag you like to be able to find people talking about their non-monogamous experience. Everything from swingers, polyamorous folks, relationship anarchists, solo polyamorists, like every single label you could think of. But I really encourage people to expose themselves to a wide variety of practice because it can be easy to get pigeonholed and feel like, oh, this is the one right way to do it. So it has to be this way. But I think my general message is to encourage people to come to it with a spirit of curiosity, both within themselves and within their partner. Dedeker Winston, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate you sharing with us your experience personally as well as professionally on non-monogamy and polyamory. We appreciate it. And thanks to the listeners uh, who, with our phone system being down, gave us so many great emails. I'm sorry I could only get to a fraction of them. I promise I will read them all so that I'm, uh, I'm uh, better informed next time we talk about polyamory. Dedeker Winston is the author of The Smart Girl's Guide to polyamory and multamory, essential tools for modern relationships. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. 
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, and just want to let you know that as Suzanne informed you on what's happening with the heavy rain throughout Southern California, we're here during this hour of Air Talk. Any new uh, flash flood warnings, any new advisories that are out, I promise we will share them with you immediately. You don't need to go anywhere else to know that you're up to date on what's happening weather-wise here in Southern California. Again, I want to thank listeners who emailed us in our last segment about polyamory because our phones are down, down likely because of the heavy rain. Our system is down, and it's doubtful we'll have it up for this hour of Air Talk. So with that in mind, um, coming up next segment, we'll be talking with NPR's Aisha Roscoe about her new book, HBCU Made, a Celebration of the Black College Experience. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk with Aisha about her book is it's a great opportunity to talk with Air Talk listeners who attended historically black colleges and universities. So because we don't have phones to do that, later this hour, I have to ask you to please email us your account of what your HBCU experience was like, what was particularly meaningful to you about it, what it was like going to an all-black college with black faculty and um, with with all the things that were provided culturally and educationally to you in that environment. So I really would like to hear that's a very important part of the next segment, and since we can't take calls, please email us your experience if you attended, graduated from an HBCU. That's coming up later on Air Talk. Our email address is atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. That's atcomments at las.com. We turn our attention now to the terrible incident last week in the high desert of Southern California in which six men were found dead, shot to death. Some of their bodies burned on a remote dirt crossroads. Uh, Five people were taken into custody earlier this week as suspects in the mass killing. And according to the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, the killings were related to the illegal cannabis cultivation business. Joining us to talk about what we're seeing in the way of illegal cultivation and sales and some of the criminal activity that has arisen around it is Assistant Professor of Sociology and Criminology at Cal. 
Cal Poly Pomona, Peter Hanink. Thank you so much, Professor Hanink, for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Um, share with us the extent to which the underground cannabis market has grown, even with the legalization of recreational marijuana. Thanks for having me, Larry. Uh, so one of the questions I think that people often have and why this can be so confusing is this uh, is why would there be a black market for a legal product? Why would there be, you know, why would there the need for an underground economy for something that you can get at stores you know, throughout the state? Um, and I think that ultimately, you know, it's it can be as simple as basic supply and demand. If the demand if the demand for a product is greater than the legal supply, then you're creating space for a black market to thrive. Well, and there's also the issue, isn't there, of the cost of it? Because we've had an um, an illicit cigarette market for many years with cigarettes being legal, but being able to undercut on price without charging the very high taxes associated with cigarettes. When you think of the regulatory infrastructure around legal cannabis, uh, how much is the, the underground uh, marijuana market able to undercut prices? That's really a great point, Larry. Uh, and I think that's a really useful comparison. And if you look at, you know, when really the, the price of cigarettes started escalating in the 2000s, uh, then you you saw, like, especially I, when I was in law school, I worked for a federal judge in uh, Long Island. And we saw this, this explosion of the black market in New York State uh, when, you know, when you started to see these increase in excise taxes and the price of cigarettes doubled. So part of it is, uh, there's the underlying price of the product. Then there are any kind of associated taxes. Both of those obviously contribute to the price that the consumer pays. One of the problems with cannabis uh, in in the state of California and really in the United States is I think what we're seeing is a market failure. That we've we've legalized a product, but we haven't created the market and the laws and regulations that the government creates are the things that allow a market to function. And when a market doesn't function, then you're gonna end up having higher costs. Uh, an example that I think might be useful is in California, We uh, California before the legalization was the largest supplier of cannabis, a largest producer of cannabis in the country. But now uh, two thirds of the counties and cities in California don't allow the cultivation of cannabis. So this place that was producing all this cannabis is now not producing enough legal cannabis for the demand. Meanwhile, the state of Oregon has a huge glut and businesses are actually going out of, and comp, uh, suppliers are actually going out of business in Oregon because they're producing more cannabis than the state can, than the, the state demands. And because cannabis is still illegal at the federal level, you can't create a market where one state has too much of something, another state demands it, and it balances out. Instead, we have California, which has a black market because we can't supply enough legal cannabis, and Oregon, which has a surplus, which is causing producers to go out of business. We're talking with Cal Poly Pomona, professor of sociology and criminology, Peter Hanink. Um, one of the things that, you know, those of us that have lived in Southern California for decades remember all too well 
um, is the high level of violence around the crack cocaine industry um, with turf wars and targeted killings, uh, very, very violent. And I'm not comparing the illegal cannabis market to that, but I think when people see a heinous, uh, what appears to be uh, execution-style attack on six people in a remote desert area, it sort of raises that question as to whether we're going to see turf wars and, and targeted violence in the underground cannabis community. And, Professor Hanning, what, what do you think is the likelihood of that? So that is clearly the big concern that, that we have. Um, so no one can, no, no, you know, it's a, it's a big debate in criminology what actually caused uh, the mass increase in homicides in the 70s and 80s, and then what caused the precipitous decline in the 90s. But one of the leading theories is the crack market and the illegal and violence associated with the illegal crack market. Um, so the, that's certainly a concern. It's certainly a concern that we could end up with a situation kind of like that. Um, one of the, I, ironically, one of the solutions uh, to violence is the creation of what you know what are often called cartels, um, which are these you know organ- criminal organizations that find ways of decreasing competition and increasing prices, carving up territory, which actually can have the effect of reducing gang violence. Um, that when you have, on the other hand, when you have a mark, when you have a market um, still emerging and you have competition between groups still emerging, that's when you often get the kind of violence as people are struggling for territory. Uh, once it kind of matures, then you actually can have decreases in violence. So we're certainly concerned that the, the violence that we see in, that we saw this last week, um, is the harbinger of something to come. Um, I don't think there's necessarily evidence that that's what we should expect to come, but that's certainly a concern. Um, And I think that it also is is a reason why uh, politicians should be paying very close attention to what happens with regulation about cannabis, because there's clearly demand for this product. And if you're going to legalize it, but not create the regulations that allow a market to form, then you're going to get a black market Um, which can turn, obviously, very violent. We're talking with Peter Hanning, who's Assistant Professor of Sociology and Criminology at Cal Poly Pomona. Also with us is very recently retired DEA Special Agent in charge of the Los Angeles Regional Office of the agency, Bill Bodner, with us. Bill, thank you very much for, for being with us. What do you see and what did you see during your recent tenure with DEA when it comes to violence surrounding illicit cannabis? You know, violence is, is unfortunately uh, has been a big part of illicit cannabis. I remember the uh, multiple murders in 2020 at a grow in Riverside. I think it was seven murders on a grow run by a Laotian group. Uh, here's the reality. I, I think where California missed the mark is the Prop 64 ended up being more about social justice reform than actually about providing safe, uh, licensed, and regulated cannabis. In Oregon, it's still a felony to cultivate marijuana outside of the license process. In California, it's not. So the state of California, if you're a moonshiner, if you produce and traffic in unlicensed liquor, that's a felony. 
but you can grow 100,000, 200,000 plants in California, and it's not a felony. There's no incentive. I would say there is a market for the drug, absolutely. There's just no incentive to join the clean market because uh, it's an oppressive tax schedule. It's an oppressive fee schedule. And why pay those things when there's no disincentive not to? There's no penalty for not playing by the rules in California. And that's why we're seeing the black market dominate. Uh, probably, Larry, 85, 90% of the market in California is black market. Why you know so what are what is what fuels the violence is is this uh theft of product territorialism over grow locations um, um the percentage of control of the market what what do you think is fueling these these acts a great question two things Larry one is i would say general business disputes right these people aren't calling lawyers or uh, issuing a cease and desist lawyer a letter when someone infringes on their territory. They grab the duct tape, they grab guns, and they handle it the way organized crime handles it. So a big part of it is territory. A big part of it is just ripoffs uh, driven by greed, right? You're, you're setting up a deal with someone and your intention is just steal the drugs from them or steal the money from them. Uh, and the other area, which is kind of unique to cannabis cultivation, which we don't see in in many of the other types of uh, illicit drug markets is labor disputes, believe it or not. Uh, there, there's a type of economic slavery involved in the cannabis, the unlicensed cannabis labor market, where people are promised a certain wage and maybe for a couple of weeks they're paid that wage, but as time goes on, the paychecks each week are short. And that kind of creates a connection with them to that particular growth. They don't wanna leave because they're owed money and they fear, they fear that if they leave that job, They'll never get paid their back pay. And eventually it comes to a boiling point where they're owed so much money that the, the workforce gets together and they confront the growers and violence results. And, and is this because this is commonly called wage theft? Is this because there's no legal remedy for those workers who are going unpaid or with short pay? Exactly right, Larry. This is, you know, there's no taxes being uh, paid. There's no, uh, you know, there's no, there's, there's no government agency to call and say, I cheated out of my wages. Let's not forget, this is the black market. These are cash payments made. And there's really uh, no recourse other than violence. We're talking with just very recently retired DEA special agent in charge of the L.A. regional office, Bill Bodner, with us uh, talking about what he's experienced. Uh, he has more than three decades uh, doing this work, but most recently what he's seen with illegal cannabis and criminal activities surrounding it. Bill, law enforcement's response to this, is, is this a kind of a whack-a-mole thing or are, are agencies able to get in front of this at all? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, right now it is a, a bit, unfortunately, of a whack-a-mole thing. There's been progress. I, I think the peak of unlicensed outdoor cannabis cultivation, at least in Southern California, was probably uh, 2022. The situation has gotten a little better since with uh, better coordination, but with state resources, county and federal resources. But, um, you know, the reality is that whether it's a, a, an unlicensed dispensary or an unlicensed cultivation site, there's no teeth behind the law right now. So law enforcement may go in and shut down the operation, but it's almost akin to getting a ticket to having uh, to walking down the street with an open container of beer. Uh, the, the operations are always back going within a couple of days or a couple of weeks. So in that respect, it is uh, it is like a whack-a-mole. And unless something is done to change kind of that 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 foundational issue 
uh, with Prop 64, I don't know that we'll see the black market decrease. Bill Bodner recently retired a special agent in charge of the DEA's L.A. regional office. Peter Hanning, assistant professor of sociology and criminology at Cal Poly Pomona. Peter, um, you talked about how the um, regulatory uh, regimen has really made legal cannabis uncompetitive with illicit uh, grow and and retail sale. But I wonder, you know, the problem here is Prop 64 was sold to voters as being a major revenue generator, not just it's time to legalize recreational cannabis, but here's a way for the public to capture a portion of the proceeds. If if that was to be done away with, to make legal cannabis more competitive, wouldn't it undermine what was the central promise of the ballot prop? Uh, certainly that if there's no legal sales, then there's not going to be any revenue. Uh, and I, I think that one of the when you're trying to address a crime, a problem with crime, one solution obviously is to increase the penalties of the crime. But another solution would be to decrease the rewards from the crime. And one of the ways to do that is, you know, ironically, to make marijuana less valuable. And so one of the things I had, I had mentioned was uh, the, these, the regulations around the cultivation of marijuana. Because it's illegal at the federal level, um, most producers of marijuana and dispensaries uh, can't access things like financial institutions, banks, loans. Um, and there, are, there is legislation that's currently stuck in the Senate called the SAFER Act that would allow that. Um, but if you could industrialize the production of marijuana, then you certainly could bring economies to scale and drive down the price. And if the price were to drop below a certain level, then it stops being so rewarding to engage in illegal cultivation. Uh, you know, if, if the price, if uh, cupcakes were selling for $1,000 a pound, there would be an illegal trafficking in cupcakes. Uh, the reason why, the reason why uh, these drug, these uh, producers are engaging in illegal cultivation is that it's profitable for them to do so and it outweighs the risks that you know that they might be facing if you can find a way to bring economies to scale to the production of marijuana then it stops being worth committing a crime all right thank you so much professor hannick we appreciate it so much from cal poly pomona and bill bodner with more than 30 years law enforcement experience most recently special agent in charge of the dea's la regional office it's air talk on la is 89.3 coming up npr's aisha roscoe you hear her every sunday morning on weekend edition sunday her new book is hbcu made a celebration of the black college experience my apologies that our phones are down, likely because of the heavy rain here in Southern California. But I would love to get your email message right now. If you attended a historically black college and university, I'd love to hear what your memories of that time was, what your experiences were like. If you had a son or daughter who went to an HBCU, share with us what that meant to you as a parent and what their experience were experiences were like as relayed to you. Email address atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. I really want to hear from you if an HBCU has been an important part of your life. We'll be back in one minute. 
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Coming up later this hour, it's Thursday. That means it's TV Talk. Our critics will be with us. It's a very busy week in new series. Uh, we've also got some series that are coming to an end, like Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's final season finally arriving. We'll talk about Feud, Capote versus the Swans from um, uh, John Robin Bates, the showrunner of that, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine, uh, so many different things. Oh, and a documentary about Run DMC. So that's all coming up right here on Air Talk. But right now, we turn our attention to historically black colleges and universities, and Aisha Roscoe's new book, HBCU Made a Celebration of the Black College Experience. Aisha, of course, is the host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday, so you bring her into your home and car every Sunday for her hosting of that program. Aisha, so good to have you with us today. I'm so glad to be with you like that. You know, I, I hear it's rainy over there, but I, I, I would love to be in California. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe our, our temperatures are a little warmer than where, yeah. where you're at. Uh, yeah. I just want to, again, re-invite listeners who've attended historically black colleges or universities to email, share your experience at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Aisha, I love that you share about being a very shy girl growing up and and about your decision to go to Howard in Washington DC how did that change how you related to other people being in an environment like Howard you know I I, I was extremely shy and introverted um, when I went to college I you know in high school I didn't have any friends my my friends were my school books and <laughs> You know, getting good grades. But, you know, going to Howard, I think I didn't like change overnight. But I think that what I, I, I loved about Howard is that it gave me space to grow um, and to learn. And it was kind of a, a safe haven, right, where I had so much from mentors and other students just kind of poured into me. Um, and, and it built my confidence. It didn't happen overnight, but it planted the seeds, uh, that I feel like you see now and you hear now on the radio. Um, a lot of those seeds were planted at Howard University. It's fascinating that you identified you wanted to be a 
journalist as your profession, even at that time when you were so reserved and so shy. And we think of that as such a public-facing job as, as it is. What, what convinced you growing up that that was the path you wanted to follow? You know, I think when you're a kid, you don't have much sense. So, you know, <laughs> you know you, but I I was so shy. I, I And, you know, I think a lot of my family was like, you're going to be out here shouting questions at people. Um, you know, obviously, I've always been talkative around people that I knew. But like with new people, I wasn't. I, I think what convinced me was I loved history. I loved, you know, English and books. And I, you know, I loved language. And I, I wanted to be able to tell these stories stories and, and basically to write tomorrow's history today, um, the first draft of history. And so there was a part of me that felt like I could do it. Um, I think that sometimes you don't always know yourself, right? Like there, there's a, there are parts of you um, that can surprise you. And I think that I always felt, even though I did not have evidence of it, that I could do this, that I could make it happen, um, and it, that I just needed to pursue it um, and be courageous enough, I guess, to pursue it. And and I was a lot stronger than I thought. We're talking with Aisha Roscoe, NPR host of Weekend Edition Sunday that you hear right here on LAS 89.3. Her new book is HBCU Made, a celebration of the black college experience. And in the book, she has a host of luminaries who attended um, a black, uh, historically black colleges or universities, including Oprah Winfrey, a graduate of Tennessee State, uh, Brantford Marsalis, the gifted musician, uh, Stacey Abrams, a Spelman College graduate, uh, Nicole Perkins from Dillard, uh, so many different people that are included in this book who share in their own words what their college experience was like and, and you know, what ways it changed them, what, what ways it helped them um, find out who they were. Again, if you if you would like to join with your own experience, if you've attended a historically black college or university, please email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Aisha, you went to uh, an integrated high school in North Carolina, but share with us the difference being a black student in, in your high school environment with, mm -hmm. with what it was like being at an all-black university. You know, even in like an integrated environment, and, and, and people have talked about this a lot, um, if you are on the honor student track, which I was, and in the advanced AP classes and such, um, it, it even within an integrated environment, you can still end up very segregated internally. Um, so even, you know, um, even though my high school was integrated, a lot of my classes, I was still one of the only black people in the class, right? Um, and sometimes the only black person in the class. Um, and so it, it, you, it, it's something that you, when you look at it, um, you see that you're kind of set apart a bit. Um, and then when you go to Howard, what you see, or you go to an HBCU, it's, you see that like, all of these black people from all over the world, from all these different experiences, and you're just allowed to be who you are. Your humanity is not questioned. You don't have to prove that, oh, I, you know, it's not like you got in here because of, of the way you look or something like that. It's, 
there is an expectation of excellence from everyone. Um, and there's not this idea that you have to prove that you even belong in this space. Um, that is a given. You do belong here. And then they expect, you know, very excellent things out of you. Uh, talk, if you will, a bit about um, what the the role of race when you're going to an all-black college or university versus an integrated space, does 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 race become less overtly discussed because because it is monocultural, or is it discussed more frequently because it's relevant to the lives of everybody there? What I think happens is on, on a black college and campus, and you, and you see this in so many of the essays, first of all, it's a very diverse experience. Like I said, you have black people from all over the world, from different financial backgrounds, you know, some first generation college students, you know, some that, you know, with Summer and Martha's Vineyard, you know, you have yeah. all a, a range. Um, but then also, I think that when it comes to race, it's just like, you know, obviously, usually, you know, you, you learn history. And if it's mostly European history, or it's mostly from a white focus, people don't go, oh, this is white history, right? Um, <laughs> if you, I think at a black college, what happens is you hear about the black experience in all your classes, but it's not treated as a side story, right? Because the black experience is a part of history. The black, you know, black people did have an impact in mathematics. Black people had an in impact in sociology. And so if, when you start from the place that to talk about or to focus on black people is not a side project, but it's just to focus on human beings who matter just as much as everybody else, I think that's the difference. Where it just becomes a part of the conversation. It's not like a special carve out. It's like this is just a part of life. These, these are human beings who've had an impact on the world, and we're going to talk about them just like we talk about white people. Um, and I, I think that's the difference. We're talking with Aisha Roscoe, the host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday, heard here, of course, on LAS 89.3. She also does the Saturday episodes of NPR's daily podcast, Up First, and her new book is HBCU Made a Celebration of the Black College Experience. I loved you sharing about your arrival on campus at Howard and how everybody is so put together in the way that they dress and the way they present themselves. It sounds so elegant, you know, the way you describe it and how you really had to, to sort of change your game when it, when it came to that. Describe that uh, a bit more for us and, and what, what that meant for you. For better or worse, I mean, at the time, we used to say that Howard was like one of the best dressed campuses on, you know, in the country. Now, I don't know if that was the case or who, who made that decision um, or who made that call. But, yeah, like, I mean, at Howard, you know, you had to come correct, not just in the way that, you know, not just with education, but the way you look. So girls would come to class and full makeup, heels, everything. I did have to do a little bit of a makeover. I was a little rough from North Carolina. I had to learn how to arch my eyebrows and, you know, kind of mm -hmm. pull my mm -hmm. hair together, um, wear, you know, real sneakers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I had to learn 
those things. I mean, I think that was like the fun part of it. It's like, I think that part of it comes from this idea of just like when the world can look down on you, I think that sometimes people can embrace wanting to step out and show out, right? Not just internally, but externally. Um, and I think that was a fun part of Howard because yeah, if you showed up, you had to show up looking good, you know, <laughs> but you also had to know what you were talking about because you would get called out, right? Like you, you had to, you had to come correct in all ways. Uh, let me share a listener comment. This is from, uh, Erie in Sherman Oaks. I'm a native Angelino, but I always knew I was destined to leave Los Angeles for an HBCU. Attending Spelman College was a life-changing experience for me. I graduated in 2009 and had the most incredible identity-affirming four years on campus. As black women, there may be very few times in our lives when we'll be surrounded and nurtured by people who look like us. Going to Spelman gave me the strength and confidence to enter a predominantly white career and thrive in competitive environments. I learned so much about who I am as a black American. It was empowering. What a unique gift to attend to school with so much history and culture and to know it was all built for you. That's Erie and Sherman Oaks. Uh, Brittany emailed us. I went to um, uh, FAMU. Uh, that's what Florida um, A&M Florida AMU. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. FAMU. I went to uh, uh, Florida AMU right out of K-12 through Catholic, predominantly white schools, and I experienced a new level of confidence, camaraderie, culture, and general familiarity. I knew nothing about black people uh, from the DMV and the go-go music or from South Florida <laughs> and all the dance styles and uh, Caribbean island natives and first-generation Americans and college students and hairstyles, new friends from California where I reside now and the music style they loved. It was a gathering of many black cultures that I never got before being uh, from the rural south in Albany, Georgia. I absolutely loved my experience. I loved my professors and the extra care they provided. I can't express my gratitude for the lifelong support of the community and the friends I have now. Go Rattlers! That's Brittany writing to us. Uh, this is great because Aisha, it's just, you you know, a lot of us have affinity for where we went to school. But in this case, the change that it's clearly made in so many people's lives about how they then thrive in the, in the post-college world is very inspiring. You know, and, and those letters are perfect. I mean, I did not write them, but they, I, you know, I could have because they, they are, they express what it means to be HBCU made and what I wanted to share with this um, book. And it's this idea that HBCUs are a very special place and have played a special role in cultivating talent among black people and black students. And, and those students then go out and make the world a better place. Um, it is no secret that the world is not often not kind to black people um, and that it can be a struggle just to exist. And that in HBCUs, you have this place that's a bit of an incubator and a place where, uh, not perfect, and I want to be clear, they're not perfect, but a place um, where Black people are given a chance to think, like, what could I be without just the limitations that society can put on you? And, and, and that's why I feel like this book 
um, is, is so important because it's a testament to how HBCUs have made the world a better place and continue to make the world a better place. I want to end with a brief paragraph that you've written in the book because it's really stayed with me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this. You write, at Howard, I learned what it truly means to come correct. Give your absolute best, not because white people are looking, but because the world will be better for it. I needed to only look to those that came before me to see that. And I, I just think that paragraph beautifully encapsulates the overall theme of your book. Aisha, thank you so much for being with us and talking about HBCU Made a Celebration of the Black College Experience. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And we'll look forward to hearing you Sunday with NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday here on LAS 89.3. Also want to let you know the Los Angeles Black College Expo is coming up a week from Saturday. That's on February 10th at the LA Convention Center from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Those that attend have an opportunity to meet with representatives from over 200 colleges, attend seminars, and receive acceptance and scholarships on the spot. Wow, that's the LA Black College Expo coming up Saturday, February 10th, 10 to 5 at the LA Convention Center. We have a link for information on our AirTalk page at kpcc.org. Coming up next, TV Talk with our critics. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. This speech is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. It's tricky. It's tight. Here we go. It's tricky to rock around, to rock around. That's right. On time. It's tricky. It's tricky. 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 It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantel. Time for TV Talk. Among the shows we'll be talking about this week is Kings from Queens, the Run DMC Stories on Peacock, but let me introduce our critics up the top here. Dominic Patton, Senior Editor at Deadline, and Liz Shannon Miller, Senior Entertainment Editor at Consequence. We begin with the Amazon Prime video series, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Glover is the co-creator of the series with Francesca Sloan as well. Liz, please start us on Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Is is this um, uh, loosely based, at least, on the feature film it is technically loosely based on the feature film but it comes at this it comes at the premise from a very different point of view as we begin with both jane and john knowing each other are spies working together on missions 
and not being totally sure if they're supposed to actually fall in love or not. And of course, maybe feelings, feelings are had, things get complicated. It's like, it's like any relationship drama, except both people are trained killers with a lot of weapons. All right, Dominic, what do you think of Mr. and Mrs. Smith? Well, I have to be honest, I really enjoyed it as a rom-com. I'm not quite sure I enjoyed it as a shoot 'em up Mission Impossible. And I really saw no reason for it to be named Mr. and Mrs. Smith, because as, as Liz said, the, the relationship to the Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie movie is purely the name. Having said that, I do think that um, Donald and Maya had chemistry to burn. I think there's some wonderful cameos here with Paul Dano and Parker Posey. I think there's a very New York story here, which I really enjoyed. Lots of great locations, as you'd expect as well. And there's there's some wild cards here that make it more interesting. In a sense, this is a deeper dive, as you'd expect from a, a multi-episode television show as opposed to a movie, than the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie movie. But I feel sometimes... I just didn't need the guns. All right. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, all eight episodes arrive tomorrow on Amazon Prime Video. It's rated TV 14. Feud, Capote versus the Swans, uh, is written by John Robin Bates. It stars Tom Hollander, Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, uh, Callista Flockhart. It's quite the cast. Liz, what did you think of Feud, Capote versus the Swans? I mean, there's kind of a dishy, there's a dishy element to this. It's very gossipy and fun to dig into this show. It's not necessarily the most compelling story. Like there's a reason why you might not be familiar with the fact that Truman Capote and a bunch of very rich women in the 1970s and were very mad at each other. But it's, there's a lot, the, the production design is incredible and it's really fun to see a lot of these actresses dig into very, very intriguing characters. Demi Moore is there. Like, it, it's a wild cast. All right. And uh, quite the star-centered, uh, again, I mean, not many TV shows are going to have Naomi Watts, Dan Lane, Chloe Sevigny, and, and Callista Flockhart uh, as, as actors. Uh, the first two episodes premiered yesterday, and then there'll be a total of eight episodes. It'll be on FX Network and streaming on Hulu. Kings from Queens, the run DMC story, which uh, brings the guys together to talk about their musical history as as pioneers in uh, rap. Dominic, what do you think of the doc? Okay, full disclosure, I am one of the world's greatest run DMC fans. (laughs) When I was a kid, New York, they were everything to me, everything. I thought you were going to say you're in the documentary. Okay. I mean, honestly... It's a, it's a flaw that I'm not, but many, many people are, including the Beastie Boys, Eminem, Questlove from The Roots, um, and their former manager and brother of Reverend Run, Russell Simmons, which is awkward for a number of reasons because the allegations against him of, of sexual misconduct and what have you, that are kind of skirted over. If you can go past that, which some people might have an issue with as much as they love the band, once you talk to Daryl, uh, McDaniels and Reverend Run themselves, their stories, their wonderful stories about who they are, how they founded this this group, and 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 with and the loss that actually is talked about in the third episode, the murder of J Master J. 
I think we just lost Dominic in mid-sentence there. He's talking about Kings from Queens, the Run DMC story, which is a docu-series streaming on Peacock. Kirk Fraser is the director. There are three episodes, all of which debut today on the Peacock streaming service. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll hear what our critics have to say about Masters of the Air on Apple TV+, Plus, as well as uh, Genius, which is a National Geographic series looking at um, remarkable individuals, MLK slash X, as it looks at the joint lives of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and curb your enthusiasm in its 12th and final season. We'll hear about that when we come back. It's our TV Talk Thursday here on Air Talk. back in one minute. It's TV Talk every Thursday on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Liz Shannon Miller of Consequence and Dominic Patton of Deadline. We were just hearing Dominic uh, sing the praises of Kings from Queens, the Run DMC story, uh, all three episodes uh, debuting today on the Peacock streaming service. Dominic big fan of the group and also of the docu-series. On Apple TV Plus, we've got the uh, dramatic action film Masters of the Air, which uh, takes us back to World War II, the Flying Fortress battle, uh, and uh, the first two episodes are out so far with the third releasing tomorrow. John Orloff, the creator of Masters of the Air. Liz, what are your impressions of it? I've seen the full season of eight ep- nine episodes, nine episodes, and it's a really dense and intriguing uh, look at World War II from a different era. Uh, and it especially gets uh, much more rich in the back half of the season, which is still, of course, to come. But right now, it's a you know, it's just really interesting to see the emphasis that the show puts on these were young men who were going to war and that that level that le- that adds so much to what you see uh you see unfold especially like because it's an incredibly daring and, and dangerous uh profession being a, a a world war ii uh bomber yeah and uh austin butler hits the cast here with callum turner and anthony boyle um how how are the performances in masters of the air I mean, with such a large ensemble, it's it, it's going to be a little uneven. And uh, I confess, you can still hear a little bit of Elvis in Austin Butler's accent. Uh, but the there's a it's a really there's a lot of really strong uh, actors in the mix. Uh, Anthony Boyle has a really great storyline, especially once he encounters a British uh, a British uh, you know operative named played by Bell Powley. Uh, uh, Nate Mann also has some really compelling stuff towards the back half of the season. Uh, and, you know, there's just tons of interesting faces in this, in the, in the, 
Masters of the Air is streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. It's rated TVMA. As uh, Liz said, there'll be nine episodes total, two out so far with another arriving tomorrow. Genius is a Nat Geo Channel series that also streams on Hulu and Disney+. Plus. And uh, the anthology turns its attention in this new production to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. It's titled MLK slash X. It stars Aaron Pierre and Kelvin Harrison Jr. Kirk Fraser is the creator of the Nat Geo series. Dominic? Well, I mean, this is in many ways a perfect start to Black History Month, which of course begins today. However, I will say what this series revolves around in the Genius series by from Ron Howard and Brian Glazer has looked at Albert Einstein and various other people over the years. This really deals with the one public interaction between MLK and Malcolm X that occurred during the, the, the battle for the Civil Rights Act back in 1960, in the 60s. It looks a lot at their past. And there are stories you're going to hear, for instance, about Martin Luther King Jr.'s original name, to put it, that will surprise you as much as you think you know about these two great icons of American history. For me... The real story here was the story of their wives and the actresses who played them. And there is an episode down the line that really, really looks at those relationships with Betty Shabazz and Coretta Scott King and the role they played in their spouses' careers and the role they played in their spouses' public and private lives. This is a very wide-reaching series. It's a big swing. You might find yourself thinking, why did they make one with two for one when they could have made two for two? Go with it. The story will teach you things and tell you things. And while it might have ebbs and flows, as you'd expect, it does teach you that out of the meeting between these two men in 1964, many, many parts of the world we live in now evolved. Dominic, you know, one of the challenges in portraying these two men is to really give a sense of the charisma, the power that they had in their in their public speaking, how they could move crowds. And are the actors able to bring that? Because that that can be quite a challenge with two men like this. Well, I would certainly say with, with Pierre, who was in the, the Underground Railroad a series, uh, um, I think that they certainly hit this. Look, for many of us, Malcolm X on screen will always be Denzel Washington. Um, and, and that is just something you have to contend with. I, I feel like part of what the producers have done here is by going into the backstories of these men as young men, as the, the how they became who they became, relationships with their fathers, et cetera, it actually nicely sidesteps you having to worry about that because as you get to know them, you grow with them. There is a richness to this. It's a very literary, uh, television series in many ways. But I think it, again, I think for all we think we know of Dr. King and, 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 and Malcolm, you will learn things from this series. And perhaps that is the greatest uh, legacy of all out of it, is you get perspective. The first two episodes of Genius MLK slash X airs tonight at nine on Nat Geo on the cable channel. And then they start streaming tomorrow on Hulu and on Disney Plus. There'll be a total of eight episodes in the limited series. Curb Your Enthusiasm, starting its 12th and final season. The first episode of season 12 airs Sunday night at 10 o'clock on HBO and also streaming on Max. There'll be a a total of 10 episodes in the final season of Larry David's show. Liz, have you had a chance to look at some of these in the final season? 
I've gotten to see the first episode and it's it's just a pleasure to watch Larry David do physical comedy at this point. Like it, it's just he's he's it, there's there's bits in the premiere that play like it's something Charlie Chaplin would have had fun with. Wow. Like it, there's he's so good at these kinds of setups. And then he also brings with it, you know, that quintessential rage and, you know, frustration at social norms that he doesn't understand. And it all makes it very relatable and funny in ways that prove why it's a show that literally premiered in the year 2000 and is still on the air and only now wrapping up its final season as far as everyone says though we'll see i guess well i gotta say weren't there earlier times when it seemed like the series was winding down only to be revived literally the season five finale is called the end and there was also like (laughs) a there is also a literal like six or seven year gap between two seasons at one point. And, you know, Larry David said before, there's been comments about how Larry David never really just wanted to end it just to avoid having that final episode looming over him, similar to how the Seinfeld finale kind of loomed over him and haunted him to some degree. And uh, so it's going to be really fascinating to see what he does with what we're now going to, we're going to consider the series finale, at least at this point. I mean, I feel like every everything HBO said implies that if Larry David came to them in a year and said, actually, I've got another idea for a season, they would say yes without question. So it's just a matter of, uh, but it, it's it's all going to be a really fascinating journey over the course of the, uh, the, of the next few weeks. Yeah, who's going to turn Larry David down? Uh, thank you so much, Liz. Curb Your Enthusiasm, 12th and final season on HBO Network and on Mac Streaming Service. The first episode this coming Sunday night at 10 o'clock on HBO, simultaneously released to stream on Max. There'll be 10 episodes of this series. Our film week, our TV week critics, excuse me, are Liz Shannon Miller, senior entertainment editor at Consequence, and Dominic Patton, senior editor at Deadline. And film week tomorrow at 10 o'clock. I'll be joined by critics Andy Klein, Leo Lowenstein, and Charles Solomon. We'll hear what they have to say about all the week's new movies, so make sure that you tune in for that. Tomorrow at 10, and Austin Cross will be here at 9 o'clock for the Hour of Air Talk leading into Film Week, as uh, he is just about every Friday. Have a great rest of the day. And I remind you, with a heavy rain that much of Southern California is experiencing, you will get continuous updates throughout the course of the day from Austin Cross, from Nick Roman later today. You don't need to go anywhere else. The updates on the rain and any hazards from it are right here on LAS 89.3. Have a great rest of the day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.